Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. I'm excited as we are continuing our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew. We're still in Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount. I'm entitling this episode, Marriage Made New, and what we're going to be discussing is Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about marriage and divorce in the New Covenant. And the reason we have new teaching from Jesus in contrast with the Old Testament is that Jesus is making marriage new. He's renewing it. He's transforming it. And as a result, lifelong marriage is now a possibility. Just to share with you a personal note, this study that we're doing, these family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew, is simply an introductory study. So I'm trying to choose text to give you a sampling of what we find. For instance, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 are so incredibly important, I only picked one to give you a sample of the Beatitudes. It's not like the others aren't important. They're incredibly important. But I picked the Peacemaker's Beatitude because I felt it was the most ignored amongst conservative Protestants and Catholics. So I wanted to emphasize that one. But, you know, what do I do with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? I'm comparing this to a little town in uh, North Georgia that my wife Karen and I have visited a couple times, just getting an Airbnb out in the woods near a town called Dahlonega, Georgia. And you may or may not know this, but the first gold rush in the United States was not in California. In fact, it was in Dahlonega, Georgia back in 1829. And when the gold rush first started, you could find gold by picking it up or simple panning in the streams and rivers. It was everywhere for the taking. And then they started the formal mining, and and then that basically faded away when the California gold rush came. But there is so much gold in Dahlonega. This is still a small town that the Philadelphia Mint sent these huge heavy presses to this mountain town to mint gold coins. You could go to the center of the city and you look at the bricks in the old courthouse and there's specks of gold because you you just couldn't dig up clay without digging up gold in Dahlonega. Well, to me, that's the Sermon on the Mount. There is gold everywhere in here. So by my picking a beatitude or a few nuggets, so to speak, out of the Sermon on Mount doesn't mean they're not everywhere. Uh, this is the gold rush. This is the center of the center of the center of things, and so it's so important. So what I did after personal reflection, I honestly didn't know what to do. I felt a impulse to pick those sections of the Sermon on the Mount that literally transform my life. Now, for you, you may have had different passages in the Sermon on the Mount to transform your life, but the Sermon on the Mount has, on multiple occasions, deeply impacted my Christian life. So that's what I'm going to be sharing with you today. And Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, 
verses 31 and 32, are the reasons you're hearing my voice over Catholic radio. They're the reasons I left my pastorate as an evangelical pastor and became a Catholic. These two verses are utterly fundamental in a major, radical, shocking, and difficult transformation I had in my life, moving from my world as an evangelical pastor now to the Catholic faith. So what do these words say? Matthew 5, 31, Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And right along with these two verses in Matthew 5, Matthew 19 also contains Jesus's teaching against divorce for his followers. And like Matthew 5, Matthew 19 also has this exception clause where he says, except on the ground of unchastity. And again, this simple word, unchastity, believe it or not, uh, was absolutely pivotal in my decision to move towards the Catholic faith and basically accept the teachings of St. John Paul II as he expressed the timeless teaching as a Catholic faith, which I believe with all my heart, honestly and accurately reflects the teaching of Jesus on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, my concern for this stemmed out of being a youth pastor. Everything I've done in my adult life in some ways has grown out of being a youth pastor and seeing how good kids just struggle so much when Christian parents separate and it's so difficult to, to really help them mend their hearts, which has been ripped apart really when their parents separate. So all of my adult life, uh, ever since I've been a youth pastor, I've wanted to help Christian couples stay together, and that's what we're doing here. Now, as a Protestant, I paid a lot of attention to my professors and the other theologians who said that Jesus had exceptions to a lawful marriage if you wanted to get a divorce. There were exceptions, and particularly it was something like adultery, and that's why a lot of translations of Matthew 5 say, except on the grounds of unchastity. Some say, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. And they're basically saying uh, adultery, because uh, that's what's happening with sexual immorality if you're married. But it's very interesting. And again, this just kind of paid dividends, uh, having a little background in the original Greek language, when it says, except on the ground of unchastity or sexual immorality, if Jesus wanted to say adultery, there's a Greek word for that that's used twice in the same verses here, but it isn't used for the exception clause. And this is very critical as we go through. A lot of this is a little technical, but hang on, there's a really good uh, ending to this. Now, I, I say to this day, I respect 
a number of Protestant theologians, scripture scholars, especially my former professors. I'm very grateful for what they gave me and love for the scriptures and their skills. And, you know, the, there is a, a sharp Catholic and Protestant divide, but not everything is bad on either viewpoint. You know, it's kind of almost irrational, uh, the differences, because in a lot of really good scripture study, a lot of it comes surprisingly close. But it's not the case with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And with great respect to my Protestant professors and the other theologians that I read on the questions of marriage and divorce and remarriage, because again, I was a young youth pastor, and then as a pastor, uh, I just wanted to help keep people together, and it it just gnawed at me that Jesus seemed to be teaching otherwise, and I came across two gigantic problems with the very common Protestant belief that somehow Jesus is permitting divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality, and uh, those beliefs I held, actually, And then it came to me, it was pointed out to me, actually, that there's two other places in the Gospels that Jesus says almost identical things that he says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. In Mark 10, Jesus says the same thing he says in Matthew 5, with the difference being he didn't include the exception clauses. And then there's Luke 16, Jesus says the same thing. He says, in, uh, as recorded in Mark 10 and Matthew 5, with the exception or the difference that he in Luke 16, there are not the exception clauses. And realizing that when these gospels were initially circulated, they were standalone. In other words, they didn't wait till they had the whole New Testament printed up and then sent it around the Roman Empire. No, these Gospels were initially sent around as individual books and then collected. That means Mark and Luke had to stand on their own, and they stood on their own without the exception clauses. And there's a number of contemporary uh, folks, again, on the Protestant side primarily, who would say, no, uh, they all have to kind of merge together. Well, they do today, but you have to realize in original context, that didn't happen. Mark 10 just has the prohibition, no exception clauses mentioned. Same thing with Luke 16. And then this one really, really, really got to me. Now, you might think, Steve's talking about these Greek words and stuff like this, and so confusing, and honestly, it is, and a number of people are confused by it, And you need to be aware that a lot of very sincere um, Protestants uh, are told by experts, the Greek says, and what can they do? Uh, Say 99% of everything else, uh, the person saying that uh, is true, so you tend to swallow it. So how could you, if you've never been to seminary and studied the New Testament Greek, how can you know what the Greek really says. Was Jesus permitting divorce on the basis of sexual immorality, as a lot of translations of the Bible say, or did it mean something else? And specifically, did Jesus make exceptions to his teaching that you can't divorce from a valid marriage and then remarry? And I have a way that's actually quite simple, even if you've never studied Greek, to figure this one out. And this is what 
push me over to the edge. And then I had to start investigating the only church I knew of on earth, um, other than some small groups here and there, uh, that held to Jesus's teaching. So what is this thing? How can I get through the Greek? What does this Greek mean in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19? It was this. 100% of the Greek-speaking early church fathers disagreed from my professors and other Protestant scripture scholars on how they interpreted Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. One hundred percent. And there's only one church father that I'm aware of that disagreed with this, and he was a Latin-speaking church father. And if you look in the Catholic Encyclopedia, they say he basically, his Greek was terrible. But the Greek-speaking church fathers knew the nuances of the language. They didn't have to study in seminary and go through all the Greek studies and this and that. They knew what this said, and none of them not one believed what people today are going around telling other people that the Greek says. When I saw this, I had to move on because this was a very shocking thing. And here's, here's the point. That Greek word, pornea, it's, you get the English word pornography, for instance, derives from that. Pornea can mean sexual immorality. So the many translations that have things like sexual immorality in Matthew 5.31, they're not trying to be uh, horrible by doing that and such because the word can mean that, but it can also mean other things. So how do you tell the difference? And when you're interpreting scripture and when particularly you're going back to the original languages and what does this word mean, the word can have more than one meaning. It's a mistake to say it always has one meaning. You determine the meaning, and you have things called lexicons, kind of like uh, language dictionaries, that tell you what the word means in different contexts. You always look at the context of the word to determine the proper meaning. And that's exactly true when we're trying to figure out what is this word porneia mean in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. It can mean sexual immorality, but it can also mean something else. So we're going to look at companion passages, the same general context in the New Testament where the word is used. In Acts 15, there was the Council of Jerusalem, and Council of Jerusalem decide, hey, uh, these Gentiles that are becoming Christians, they don't have to kind of like go back and become Jews and, ad- and adopt all of the Old Testament practices in order to be Christians. It took the yoke of the law over them, but they said, uh, we're not to trouble them but we write to them that they have to do, we ask them to do four things. And this is from Acts 15, verse 20, that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, and that's from the Revised Standard Version, but the word is porneia, the same word used in Matthew 5. Number three, from things strangled, and number four, and from blood. And these are kind of connected with pagan 
thoughts. These four things, all four are contained in Leviticus chapters 17 and 18. They were prohibitions in the law. Now, somebody says, Steve, you just said that the Council of Jerusalem was saying they were lifting the law from the Gentiles. They did. But what these four prohibitions found in Leviticus 17 and 18 predated the giving of the law. They were known by, uh, they're known by scholars as the laws of Moses. These were universal laws way back to the time of the flood. These were the laws given that then found their way into the law of Moses. So in canceling the law of Moses, they said everything except porneia regarding the word we're talking about here. And what's in Leviticus 17 and 18? Well, Leviticus 17 and 18 use the word porneia to refer to incestuous unions and or marriages amongst close relatives. It's a very specific meaning determined by the context, okay? All right, all right, I hear that, but you know, I don't know. My Protestant Greek expert says something else. Okay, well, here's another one, and this one is pretty obvious. It's in your face obvious. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, those of you who are shaking your head saying, wow, there are problems in the Catholic Church today, and uh, yep, there are, and uh, guess what? There were some pretty severe problems in the Catholic Church in the first century. There weren't any other churches around at the time, so when we're talking about the church in Corinth, this was a very early Catholic church, and what had happened in Corinth is that they misjudged, since they were Greeks, they thought, thought the body wasn't spiritual, and when they heard that they had been born to new life and such, they thought they were in the new age, and they were in the new age, but their bodies weren't, but they thought as a result of their erroneous Greek thinking about the body, that it really didn't make any difference anymore because they were new creatures in Christ. Well, as a result, there was a man who basically formed a union with his father's wife, incestuous marriage. This is how St. Paul mentions it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication, or some translations say sexual immorality, just like some translations say the same thing about this word, porneia, in Matthew 5. Okay? There is fornication, porneia, among you, and of a kind that is not so much as named among the Gentiles. In other words, you're scandaling. Uh, scandalizing the immoral Gentiles in this basically sexual liberation city called Corinth, and that one should have his father's wife. This is an incestuous relationship, uh, forbidden, Leviticus 17 and 18, forbidden all the way back to the laws of Moses. And in context, porneia clearly means an, an illicit union, and you might call it a marital union, but it was an illicit one. So what is Jesus saying? There's no divorce for his followers, and his only exception was for converts who found themselves in unlawful marriages, 
like those prohibited in Leviticus 17 and 18 amongst close relatives or even uh, close family members, as bizarre as that is, that happened in, in 1 Corinthians. And to how would you apply this today? Uh, let's say there, there are people who think it's okay to enter into what's called a so-called same-sex uh, relationship, same-sex marriage, it's called by the uh, our state and federal governments, and they can get a marriage license. So what happens if you just start digging in the Bible and your heart's really touched and you have a change of mind and repentance, and, and now what do I do? Jesus said, don't divorce. Well, I'm married to my same-sex partner. Well, Jesus' prohibition of divorce, there would be an exception if the marriage isn't a valid marriage, isn't a marriage that's really allowed to begin with. Okay. Now, the companion passage to Matthew chapter 5 in, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned, is Matthew 19. And it's very interesting because the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they weren't seeking truth. They were seeking to basically trip Jesus up and so it says in Matthew 19 and verse 3, the Pharisees came to Jesus tempting him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered them and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, what did Jesus do? When asked about marriage and divorce, what did he do? He went back to the very beginning of marriage in Genesis 2. And he goes on, he says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. The reason you don't separate is like marriage is like you take super glue and put it on a piece of paper and then get another piece of paper and put them together. You can't separate them with harming both because they have been made one. Uh, this, is, this is a stark reality, and Jesus was simply reverberating what Moses said in Genesis 2. So the Pharisees, clever guys that they are, came back at Jesus and said, well, why did Moses say you can write a bill of divorce and put her away? And it is true fully true. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24 says that if you're going to divorce your wife, you've got to write her a bill of divorce, and then basically you can't remarry because what men were doing was just trading wives like old used cars and, you know, getting rid of one and somebody else marries her and, oh, I want that car back or I want my wife back. And then, you know, it's just it's an abuse of wives, really what was going on. But it's very interesting to me, and I've looked at so many of those uh, who are building a case for Jesus allowing divorce. Guess where they start? Deuteronomy 24, where the Pharisees started when wanting to trip up Jesus. Jesus, when asked about what about divorce, and again, this is for his followers, he goes right back to Genesis 2. The Pharisees go to Deuteronomy 24. So how did Jesus handle this? He says, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to put them away. But from the beginning, Genesis 2, it was not so. And so I say to you, 
And this is repeating what he said in Matthew 5, whoever shall put away his wife except for fornication and marry another committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. And here's what it what it is. And this, you know, you may have heard how horrible God is and how horrible the Old Testament is because he has this law in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When our race fell into original sin, it so corrupted the human heart that let's say um, there was a drunken fight and somebody picked up a board or a heavy log and whacked some guy in the face and took out his eye. Well, and the unrestrained sin would cause that guy to go back to his family or worse to his entire clan and say, well, let's exterminate all those men in that clan and rape their wives. In other words, let's have a war here, the Hatfields and McCoys. And God says, no, he couldn't change them. Jesus says, Moses wrote that because of the hardness of your heart. He couldn't give a tender heart, but Jesus, through the Old Testament law, God giving that was trying to restrain the human propensity to overreaching. And what Moses was doing, just like limiting revenge to hard-hearted people, he was limiting how you could do divorce to hard-hearted people. He was trying to restrain it. But something changed when Jesus came. This was prophesied in the prophet Ezekiel chapter 36. when God, And this is the new covenant. This is the marriage made new in the new covenant. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put it within you, and I will remove your heart of stone. That's the hard heart. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, the secret to marriage is, number one, if you're not a Christian, get rid of it. You know, have faith, get baptized, repent, and God will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Get rid of the heart of stone. You know, having a heart of stone would be really hard to stay married. And then if you're a Christian and in a Christian marriage, you think our only solution is divorce. Well, maybe your marriage can be made new again and again. In other words, repent, draw near to God, um, go to confession, a sincere confession, ask God to renew you, go forward in the Eucharist and ask God to bestow graces upon you as your relationship with God is renewed, so is your marriage. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 433 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.